You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. So I want to welcome everybody today in this podcast. Uh, I'm Liz Cook, and this is Core Awareness. And today I have a special guest that I'm excited to have a conversation with. Um, Janine, and I've got a hyphenated last name, Galati Nacarito. Nacarato. Nacarato. Okay. Um, Janine Nakarata, easier a little bit for my tongue, um, is someone I just recently met, but she brings such a um, depth of understanding her own somatic journey to coming into coherency and awareness that I invited her onto my podcast. So this is really our first deep dive conversation around her life and what brought her to the knowledge or uh, reckoning to the uh, wealth of depth of somatic insight that she has come to. Uh, Janine is a second generation uh, Ramana trained and certified Pilates teacher. And she's a graduate of Temple University School of Public Health. And she has dedicated her career path to discovering and developing methods which focus on non-surgical, and I would probably say a non-drug uh, intervention for self-healing and self-realization. And she's the author of a book that has not, I don't believe, have been uh, published quite yet, Body IQ, Path to Wellness Through Kinesthetic Learning, A Paradigm for Redefining Fitness and Wellness. So she's a trainer, a teacher, and a author. And part of what this, what this, uh, get these sounds, um, what this book is about is movement is thought in motion. So that's kind of where we're going to jump off. So called it body IQ, which I also love because I talk about kinesthetic or somatic intelligence and the direct perception of life through that intelligence, as well as all the other intelligences. Um, and so body IQ is a process of putting your thoughts into motion physically, spiritually, and psychologically. It's a process by which higher thinking can evolve. I love that. So another quote I have of hers that I think is so uh, kind of sets the tone for our conversation is movement specificity is important for the overall balance function of your whole brain function, whole brain thinking, one whole body movement go hand in hand. So um, I want to welcome you, Janine, for joining me. And I'm going to unmute you here. Um, and you can unmute yourself. I think I can't unmute you. So I muted you just because little sounds pop in. There we go. Hi. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I'm delighted to have it with you and uh, 
the background you come from, I know that we can cross paths in our conversation to help listeners uh, develop a deeper understanding of their mind-body connection. You know, this is the meme that's out there, mind-body, and uh, it's uh, played out in many arenas today and in many ways. And, uh, you know, now uh, when I started my Pilates practice in, in 1989, uh, I had one type of student coming to me very eager to learn about what Pilates was and, and what it can offer them. And uh, today it's being presented in a very different way. Uh, it's not any longer uh, what I learned maybe as a young student. It's more of, of a method of exercise now, which is fabulous. But somehow some of the nuances have gotten lost in what I learned to be so valuable about its method, uh, you know, and its contribution to people's physical and mental wellness. And, you know, Mr. Pilates spoke about it in his books and, you know, it's very, the, the material, while, while still relevant, is pretty dated. And uh, thank, uh, I'm really thankful that I was able to extend my career and, uh, you know, continue to move along the conversation and pay attention, help people pay attention to their mind body, to what is mind body? Yeah. What is coherency? Well, and, and so, so what I would like to start with is to just um, tell people that uh, you and I are going to shape a conversation that we hope will inspire questions and specifically around autism, sensory integration, and motor learning. Because your background uh, is what entices me, how uh, you came to find ways of integrating. Uh, and so we're gonna, we're gonna go into that conversation. So this is really about uh, an integration of coherency, is how I would put it. So tell us, Janine, what was life like for you as a child? Uh, when I was a child, I had no sense. Of, I had no filter. Uh, as a child, it's hard for you to say to your parents, you don't know what's going on. But for me, the light was very bright. Sounds were very loud. I was always startled as a child with movement. Uh, I, movement was very scary to me. Uh, it was almost like I didn't have a skin. Uh, and that's how I see it as I grew older and start to assimilate into a normal neural kind of uh, pattern. Uh, I started to understand. Uh, it was like being in a washing machine. <laughs> Um, you said, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a piece from your book. My personal experience is that children are whole beings until we begin uh, acculturating. That's actually my words. And, um, and you write about some of your experiences with the culture. You know, and, and so when I hear what you say as a child, I think that's true for many children. I don't think yeah. there's such a thing as normal. There is something that the culture defines as normal. So, so I want to ask you, and I know that feeling normal is something that many children want to feel. They want to belong. They want to sense themselves. They want approval. They want to feel safe. So, so we're looking at that, but we're looking through it as in an eye of a Western model of what normalcy is. And at this point in time, I actually don't feel uh, that our culture is is healthy. So I don't necessarily define normal and healthy in the same idea that they belong together. Uh, but what is normal are certain beliefs and ways of being. And so, you know, uh, I'm getting a lot of clicking on your side. So anything that you don't do helps our, our uh, conversation because if you're touching something, unfortunately it gets picked up in our recording. Can you um, hear it now? Uh, no, it's it's probably moving your either your mouse or your pen or something um, that clicks. Um, so when I hear some of what um, you've you've spoken about to me and also written in the in the beginnings of your book around how you got to the ideas that you got to and how important they were to you. Um, you know, I think about if you were born into an integrative or indigenous culture. 
if that child would not be incredibly considered very special and aware and energetically refined in its your capacity to pick up all kinds of information and recognize that you know how how that works so you know that's part of what i'm thinking of when i when i uh hear your story but there's yeah. there's labels and the expectations that you got from your family so speak to me about how that was for you as a a child with your mother's expectation of what is normal what is what you're capable of how did that all land in you as a kid well for me i was born my mother was 36 so i was born in 1959 my mother was 36 37 and uh, that's old for back then for having a child so i think when i was born uh, i was a very different child from my mother my siblings were raised in the 50s <laughs> and i was raised in the 60s and 70s so i think uh you know i think uh, my mother i was really quiet i was more introspective i was highly sensitive i cried a lot i uh there was something clearly uh i was not like a normal when i say normal i mean uh just presenting as normal plus i was not engaging in school I, I was pretty lost. And so I think my mother, who just noticed all that, tried to reach out and look for ways to uh, bridge that gap. I seemed slower than uh, my peers, um, the neighbors. I, I, raised, I was raised in a neighborhood in Philadelphia in this inner city, inner city kid. And so we had a lot of neighbors and it was very jolly. And we always, and I was somewhat always in the background. I didn't really engage in a, in, in, um, and I, I can't even tell you why. I just know speaking for me when I was young was very painful. So, uh, so what, I, what, I'm, I, what I'm hearing is um, that uh, growing, you, people put labels on kids, introverted, you know, shy. Um, now we have words like, you know, uh, uh, a, a whole span of autism responses. How as an adult do you look at yourself now? How do you understand it within the context of a broader framework of um, assimilation of information? Yeah, I think that was, I, I was on information overload for most of my childhood until I discovered the connection between physical motion and helping calm my nervous system, you know, how to stimulate that parasympathetic. I think, uh, I don't know, I was just always frightened. I could remember being frightened a lot. A lot of things frightened me. Uh, things seemed loud. I could not, I remember going into the subway with my mom when I was young and I was just overwhelmed, screaming, terrified, you know, things. Uh, and, and so it was clearly I had a sensory uh, difference and uh, back then it wasn't really identified, uh, I, you know, uh, as uh, anything. They, they were, you know, I was looked at as a behavior problem, actually. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's so, important to yeah. hear because a lot of children are defined that way when in fact it is really true. sensory overload. Yes. That's right. And so I had sensory overload a lot, and especially in school when I had to sit still and be in a classroom for many hours when I really wanted to be outside playing, of course. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that that's perceived uh, uh, in the adult world as uh, being uh, not cooperative. And there was just no way to kind of calm me or discipline me. Uh, I, my brain just didn't respond in a way, in a normal way. And so, uh, you know, I very often had to stay after school. I was very often, um, you know, disciplined and things like that. And, uh, but when I was disciplined, I loved that because I was alone and I, you know, I did things in the house. Like I took apart my father's watch. I took apart the telephone. I was always getting into, I love to know how things work. That's who I was as a child. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, because I was a girl, I think that, that wasn't encouraged in my family. <laughs> I didn't, you know, but, uh, but also physical movement was so important to me. And so uh, it wasn't until I was uh, uh, start dancing. I started dancing classical ballet when I was maybe 16. And uh, where something happened, my, I wasn't really connected to anything. I could just tell you by the time I was 17, something happened 
where I was connected to my intellect, I realized there was a real life out there and I was a part of it. Mm, that's <laughs> and, beautiful. Uh, I, yeah. And, so let's, and, and take, let's take that into, uh, let's take that into um, something. I'm going to read another quote because this is part of your body IQ book. When a child is not connected to themselves or their surroundings, when the disconnect inhibits them from inhabiting their nature, it is very painful. Only most children cannot express this disconnect as pain. So they begin to literally act out what they cannot grasp. Therefore, the practice of kinesthetic learning is important at every age. It is never too late to get connected. Kinesthetic learning is like a silent language that we all know about but take for granted because we engage in activities of daily living but not purposefully with intention for learning purposes. So that's a kind of uh, beautiful way of going into the question of what you define around that time of 17 to 20 as a self-described uh, kind of before and after your brain went live. So what does that mean to you? Your brain went live. I, I don't know. I, I, began, I became interested in things. I, I began to read for, for like, not because it was school assigned. I began to uh, see things as tools for learning. And I saw that learning as, uh, as deepening my nature as a human being. I can't describe like what I was like before. <laughs> I felt like a lump being pushed around by, uh, you know, school activities and parents. And, you know, when you're a kid, you get shuffled around a lot. Yeah. And so it's not always in the best interest of a family to consider the youngest, which I was. And I was just always shuffled around from place to place and, you know, just told what to do. And, and uh, it, it was... Uh, Aside from making a kid with sensory differences, it was pretty miserable for me. And then uh, I think in my dance years, I could remember the freedom of expression from my, just uh, like a very heartfelt uh, opening of my, well, you talk about, or, you know, this is, was an organic opening. And then later in my other, you know, my, in my yoga years, I, I start, I got that at a whole other level uh, where, uh, I, I, it's like I'm three-dimensional now. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, so um, you told me that your dad gave you a book about movement. Uh, yeah. and that seemed to turn something on as well. Do you want to speak to that or how, how, where you started entering into movement as the medicine, I would call it? Yeah, it was movement as medicine. Well, a, a brief story in my history of my family, my brother who would be 14 years older than me. He was a dancer and he was kind of like a Patrick Swayze type. And he was a beautiful, really just like, a, he also did performances and, but he was killed in Vietnam. Mm. And that kind of turned this darkness in our family. But when I was young, I went to dance class with my brother and he lifted women and I saw all the things he did. And that was just, I remember that. But then my, when my brother passed away, uh, my mother never took me anymore to Miss Louisa or whatever. And uh, you know, this what, and so my dad, when I was maybe 16, he gave me this book for my birthday, a CD Hessel, I'll never forget. It was like a modern dance type of book and a fitness book together where you, it was so beautiful, the lines and the body. And I, I was so impressed my dad gave me that book because you know, I was just a lumpy teenager. I wasn't really, I was engaged in sport, but nothing, I didn't have a, a physical, I wasn't exercising regularly or have any interest. Do you remember and, what uh, the name of the book was? I know it was C.D. City Hessel, uh, was the S-I-D-I. I think I still have it in storage somewhere. I, I, I definitely know I, mean, I still have it. pull out sometime and look at it. And see yeah, I mean, I, and so, and I just remember that my dad gave me this book and I thought, my dad thinks I can do that. And I, that's, I really, that, and then my, I got one of my good friends and we, we said, let's go take a ballet class. And I thought, you know, I used to do that with my brother when I was little. So that was like a touchstone for me. 
because I could remember going to dance class with my brother and he would lift me up and uh, I, you know, it was just a really a very deep connection that for me, it, you know, in the emotion and the physical, uh, it brought something of meaning to me. That's great. The, um, uh, I want to I go into um, a couple of things because in, in the way I approach uh, core integrity, a lot of my work is about not doing repetitive movement. And yet you found that ballet training and the movement training started to affect the way your brain was functioning. So you want to tell people how, how that was for you, um, how you, how you felt that, that, that coalescing between the movement and your brain. I can tell you that I was really lucky to go to ballet class in Narberth, Pennsylvania, to the ballet school of Vaganova. I, I just don't, I, I grew up in South Philadelphia. This was on the main line. I had it in my head. I don't know where I got the idea. I went out there and I decided I was taking ballet class there. And so um, <laughs> it was probably one of the more elite, they, they, the Marguerite de Sa and her husband, John White, she, they, they were with the ballet, I guess the ballet, the National Ballet of Cuba with the, uh, yeah. Anyway, they, they had a very high level of training. I have no idea what made me want to do that, but I saw the, I was watching ballet, of course, Makarova and Varishnikov, I grew up in that era. And I just thought that is something that's gonna be good for me. And uh, I was taking ballet classes locally, you know, nothing too really fancy, but I did have a high level, a high degree of physical prowess. I always was very good at sport, uh, but I never gave it any shape. Um, I have a, I'm like somewhat in the 98th percentile of spatial skills. I have a very uh, sharp eye. My eyes track movement. Anyway, so <laughs> that's, and that's what makes me good at my work that I do now. Um, so I did that. I went out to ballet school and I could just remember the feeling of using space to grow my nervous system. Oh, oh I love that. That gives me chills. Speak more. I could remember. I still to How this day. Space to to grow your nervous system. Speak more. How did it send? I can't, yeah, I, I, I can't tell you how, except that I was in a very highly disciplined uh, environment. And that's what the, my, my young person, me as a young person, I needed physical discipline. And Mr. White, we, you know, he was, uh, they were taskmasters. They, this was a Vaganova method. It was very kind of, you know, ballet wonderful beautiful string I mean just very dynamic but I still till this day have like some days I could feel myself jumping through space still mm -hmm. I remember loving jumping mm -hmm. and I could remember though I would use my body to reach through the space and I could feel how that space would go through in some like I just it felt whole body and whole brain to me. And I knew that whatever I was doing, I had to keep doing. <laughs> and the more I did it, the more, again, that three-dimensional uh, example has somewhat stayed with me, whole body, whole brain. And I think, uh, look, later in my college career, when I was somewhat diagnosed as a high-functioning autistic uh, with a high level of spatial skill, I think that's what gave me that, uh, you know, uh, skill set was my ability to navigate through space in such a fine motor way. I did not just dance. I really danced from like my spirit. <laughs> like, I don't know if that you know, I, what, it, what it reminds me of, Janine, is, is how knowing children are, uh, yeah. how, 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 we, we internally know it's like a plant. They know where the sun is, even though they're in the dirt. They, they, right. They're moving towards something that really allows them to flourish. And how it doesn't have to be told what's going to do that. It actually has to be fostered and nourished. And yes. once that, those conditions are there, 
you know, it's, it's creating those conditions in which you could really blossom. And my parents would say to me, you're not going to become a ballerina. What are you doing? I said, I know, but I love this. I, and they look, they tolerate it from the time I was 17 till the time I was 24. I was a ballet bum. I mean, literally, I, uh, and I went all over to New York, I, and I never really wanted to perform. I, look, I, I thought performing was wonderful, but I never, that was never my goal. The, I loved, the, uh, I think I told you, uh, contact improv and modern dance. I saw, you know, I was a little bit of a ballet snob, but I saw... <laughs> I saw it as a le- I, I did back then. I saw it as a lesser a confession. Art. It was awful. <laughs> I know this is my confession. So I, I just saw it as a more unscripted uh, form of art, which, which then I really learned as I grew into my twenties, toward my later twenties, really found this value because touch was difficult for me. I didn't really like to be touched. I didn't want to touch. If people would hug me, I would always have my arms here. Uh, so it was always difficult for me, even as maybe until I was maybe 25, even into my 30s, uh, touch was a very hard thing. And so those arts of contact improv and modern dance, you know, we got, you got kind of on the floor and we rolled around and it was just a wonderful, after being disciplined and regimented and repetitive movement, this then gave me another level of expression which that's when I start to speak. <laughs> and my husband, my husband, I married, my husband, uh, we, we've only been married a short time, but we knew each other in our 20s. He looked for me after many years and we start dating and now we're married, but we were college buddies. And he says to me till this day, you never spoke when we were young. Why do you talk so much now? <laughs> <laughs> No, literally, he and I in our 20s, we would be sitting in his living room, we would go to the movies together all the time, and neither of us spoke. We just sat together. And he was just this companion for me that I loved being with. But neither of us were talkers. And it didn't bother us. So, So that's the funny part is that after ballet, <laughs> I could tell you that my, that's when my verbal skills, and of course, becoming a Pilates teacher, Ramana brought me, a, again, another way out of my shell, and uh, I, I, my verbal skills, uh, and that's my skill set in teaching now, is I describe through imagery, and I lead people into their bodies in another way, so that they can feel a very typical movement in a new way. That's wonderful. Um, thank you. Um, so I yeah. want to talk about this idea of um, brain, because we're using the word, and I want to kind of parse that a little bit. So because of my work with the psoas, uh, which is part of the primal brain, um, and I feel like when you're talking about your early childhood, developmental issues, sensory uh, different responses, we're also talking a lot about what the Western um, mode modernity perceives as the right way of being, which is to be in the frontal brain, specifically on the left side of the brain, in which you're, for as a child, focusing. And um, I, I was thinking about that. So I, when I hear, um, what I hear actually is how uh, the culture conditioning forces children, I'm actually reading my notes, to perceive the world in one specific way through cognitive specificity. And the focus is on the left brain function, which means an example is that people think it's really great to take babies and show them and young children the ABCs as if that's gonna start their regimented life in a better way. But what we're really doing is forcing a child who perceives in a very whole being way, I'm not even gonna say body, a whole being way, um, we start to demand that they put their attention on developing the left side of the brain, which is the right hand. So, you know, in developmental phases, children who were left-handed were actually punished because it was the wrong side of the brain. So if you look at historically what education has been, it's been to be left brain, right, direct, focused, and attentive to something that is a linear pattern. 
And Thank so you. it actually is associated now in science with um, patriarchy and misogyny. Um, it's an interesting look at that dynamic. Uh, there's a book called The Alphabet and the Goddess in which a physician tracks the history of the development of the left brain as a way of Western uh, belief systems and ways of being that have actually taken it all the way into what we might say a dysfunction and an imbalance in our culture. So if I'm looking at it, um, one of the other things we do with this relationship that he speaks to is the eye organization. So for example, for me, babies need to be held. We're uh, mammals, we co-regulate with bodies. So, so we don't, putting a baby uh, away from a body is actually not developing its nervous system. It's actually, it's called individuation, but it's actually isolation in which the system is supposed to be able to self-regulate, but systems don't self-regulate, they co-regulate. So when we're looking at what mammals do, we're co-regulating organisms. People like Stephen Forges talks about the importance of co-regulation to the polyvagal system, to the, uh, what you're speaking of, to not only language, but communication, to interfacing, to intimacy, to social behavior. So we're looking at, for me, I'm looking at back brain, but you've talked a lot about this relationship of, of the specific, the specific movements helping you um, bring coherency to the brain. And so I'd like to start there in kind of diving a little deeper about what you as both a teacher uh, and educator is bringing forward to this relationship of uh, what, what have you discovered about the importance of bringing left right brain into relationship to the heart. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, whole brain thinking is, I think we're learning can take place at a deeper level. And uh, it, I could tell you from myself, uh, the more education, look, our Western medical system has a hold on our thinking around uh, health and who we should be and how we should present and so forth. And I look, I was on the path to go to medical school myself in 1989 and then thought I, it, it just felt very flat earth to me. There was no dimension in it. And I was actually sat down by uh, uh, the head of the uh, osteopathic division in Philadelphia. And he said to me with, this, with the tactical skill you have, he said, you'll do much better and you'll be able to help more people. Uh, he showed me his stack of papers at his desk. And anyway, and, and said he barely gets to do what he loves. So I changed my path and then went into my field, knowing that I was going to travel a different road. I wasn't going to be a trainer and teach people exercise. What I was going to do is use exercise to introduce people how to access their sensory systems in another way as a tool to help them navigate life because that's what I had to do as a youngster. And that's what turned my brain on. That's my uh, path that I live. And so when I, the first thing that I do in my life is I organize the environment. Uh, I don't have harsh lighting in my studio. Uh, the coloring is soft. I usually use scent in some way uh, to introduce, uh, to get people to relax. And so I, somewhat make an assumption when I have a client coming out from the outside I know their uh, adrenaline you know they're usually souped up on something and the first thing I do is I'll, I'll call it disarm them <laughs> so that they can then um, you know can, they can then kind of tell me what they really need mm -hmm. you know I don't assign a lot of exercises I mean look I know what they need as far as exercise that's always an easy thing to do, but then introducing exercise in a way that's meaningful to people so they'll actually love it is a whole other path. Mm. Uh, and it, those of us who grew up in the age where, where I am in my 60s, you know, you went to gym class when you were a kid and nobody wanted to do anything. <laughs> you didn't want to do gym because of how gym was introduced. It was 
pretty mechanical and militaristic almost and um, and competitive. Yeah. And competitive. And so it isolated a lot of people, especially people who were maybe not as physically connected in that way. And so it, this, when we, when we send children, when we teach children to only learn through their brains and not, you know, and this, we keep developing this intellect, it's very limited in its capacity to lead us through life as three-dimensional or whole brain thinking beings. And um, I just, uh, with my work, I, I use Pilates as a platform because I, I happened to fall in love with my teacher who I watched what she did. I didn't really listen to what she said because what she said was, yeah. yeah, yeah, she had an incredible gift with her hands. And when she touched you and you just, oh, you were like, I'm not supposed to be tensing that shoulder. Okay. She just had this wonderful patience. And uh, I, I thought that's really wonderful. And I want to learn that. And I want to bring that to other people because tension, of course, I know you work with this with SOAS and uh, tension is, is a very limited way to utilize our bodies and organize our bodies. And when we organize our body around tension, we are actually doing that to our nervous system and our brain as well. Mm. So it you're souping. Me, it sounds to me like you um, recognized at some point in this journey uh, that touch was actually something that was valuable. Whereas Absolutely. before it was like too much well, that's right. I went from not being able to touch, well, I, I, to be touched and to doing massage. So I went and I got my, uh, I, I did my training and I, well, because using, I did that once my osteopath, you know, I had a wonderful osteopath. She's from Vermont. She was in Philadelphia for a little while and uh, she was kind of off the path. She wasn't a traditional osteopath. She studied cranial osteopathy and took it very seriously. And in my late twenties, well, I was very lucky to meet her. And she told me about my, you know, my brain. And she described to me that probably I was a forceps baby <laughs> and that how temporal lobe dysfunction can cause a lot of neurological differences. Yeah. And so I was, she gave me, she just handed me this book from a woman named Donna Williams called Inside Out. Mm. And I, I read that book. And I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, uh, and so I, I thought, wow, that's, so I, I saw that as a, another way to perceive my abilities uh, and how to move through life. Uh, and in a way that taught me to be more patient and more kind to myself. Mm -hmm. So I talk about that in my book. Sometimes our self-talk is like the outside world, hurrying ourselves or correcting ourselves or sometimes yeah. scolding ourselves internally, and which also sets up a negative feedback system in your body. You know, our bodies are so brilliant. We are closed neural circuits. We do have the ability to self-heal. The answer is in us, but we have to take time to cultivate that solution or answer and when I watch your work and what you do and how you give space to a process this is another way of developing intellect which I'm hoping at some point our society will look at that and value um so let's Tell us more about the relationship you found between the sensory integration and emotional trauma. Uh, I guess by the time I got to university, I was a mess. I was always in a hyper state and I had to learn self-regulation behaviors like tapping and breathing and meditation. And I didn't even know what self-regulation was. You know, they, I was just told that I had to learn how to self-regulate because <laughs> um, uh, I think that sometimes there's not enough uh, neural, you know, uh, if a neural arc is not completed, it's like having a short in your circuit. What's a neural a arc? Describe to people what that means. Like or your nervous system has an arc, it has a range. 
it has a pathway mm -hmm. and it's a loop like when you do your little mudra finger in yoga uh, this is i imagine these neural arcs that i have that help me with uh, navigating space and understanding uh let's say behaviors or even people facial recognition sometimes is hard for me i don't uh, always understand a face of a person's face mm -hmm. uh, like a mood uh, so i use my uh I, I go into my body to find that understanding. Mm. Like in massage, I listen with my hands. I don't feel. Yeah. I actually can listen through my hands and I hear people's movement. I'm watching them, but I use my ears to hear them. Mm -hmm. Their breath. You can very often, you hear movement before you ever see it. You just have to attune yourself to that. Mm -hmm. These are my, uh, my ears are very strong. I have a, I don't know what it is. It's just very, it's almost like another pathway for me. Yes. When I'm with a body, when I'm with a person in a body and working out through what does this person really need? You know, I'm, I'm using my ears. Yes. Yes. I, 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 can't I, 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 I listen, I listen as well that way. Right. So you you have this you have these skill sets that people go, you what? I listen with my hand or you 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 see with your ear. But these pathways are arc together when you bring them together through movement specificity. So when I'm doing a movement, like when I'm was doing your fluid movements that day on your workshop that I attend at, it was this very nice kind of dance between my ears and the space around me. Mm -hmm. uh, the vestibular system, you know, this whole sphenoid uh, bone is like the pelvis of your head, right? So this is the sphenoid bone is the roof of your mouth, right? It's the space behind your nose. The yogis say that this is the place of knowing, right? Um, so many cultures have an, a way for this and this our, our center. Uh, but these places have intelligence and, you know, uh, <laughs> and so when you're moving, take those tools with you, right? You take those tools with you and you're perceiving space while you're moving through space. That's beautiful. It brings uh, a piece that I'd like to talk about because one of the things I learned through exploring the psoas for 45 years is uh, that one of its messages is about proprioception, what we call proprioception, which is the internal, what are called writing reflexes, vestibular system. And the joints have tell us something about where we are in space through the bones and gravity, and they vibrate on the level of Earth. And so I started, when I wrote Stalking Wild Soas, Embodying Your Core Intelligence, I, I started talking about our joints just don't tell us about range of motion. They're actually eco-locators. That part of the Western concept is I'm a body, I'm isolated, I'm separate, I move through a landscape, you know, I'm self-regulating, but you know, I don't, I don't interface with anything else alive. You know, and only what I choose is alive is important to me. You know, I'm not part of a kinship. I'm not in a reciprocity with all life. But when we head into these things like proprioception and eco-locators of joints, I'm literally getting animal body responses. It's what I call, I mean, it's part of the primal brain. So we're talking about the back brain. We're talking about our instincts. We're talking about the animal moving through space who is also using all those other uh, uh, perceptions, but there's also an inner knowing that you feel through bone, through connection with ground that sends messages about a larger relationship. Um, and so it's not space like empty, it's actually life itself. And, and so when I hear you speak, it, it, it feels like that's a kind of knowing that you have always stayed deeply connected to. And yeah. then you had to add these kind of cultural social pieces.
that help you uh, show up in life as functional, as, you know, maybe even inspirational, but certainly tolerable. Because otherwise, you know, there's judgment and there's like, how does this person, you know, we, we can look at mental illness that way. We can look at learning disabilities that way. We can, there's these labels that we put on people that define them and then we exclude them in some way of not being relevant because they can't do that one thing that is that left brain. But they're picking up a much larger field of information. And to me, that's, that's the inner knowing you're speaking to. That, and you're kind of have a new language with the body intelligence. So what are some of the processes you use to achieve this level of whole body coherency on a personal level? And you've spoken a little bit in your work, but what do you do in your personal life too? Because you were saying, you know, this is a, pro this is a life process. This isn't like something that's done. Yeah. yeah. So speak to that. I, I, well, I can't, uh, I can't like for me to go to a baseball game, <laughs> that, that blows my circuits. My osteopath taught me when I go into Home Depot or any of these places with all this very lighting mm -hmm. is I wear a hat to protect my head for some reason. It's very sensitive to energy. Yes. So what I do is I, you know, when I go places, I make sure I know, you know, where I'm going and uh, I prepare myself by bringing down my energy. So I, I'm not, I don't go out like all already souped up. <laughs> we don't recognize we are, we are such an adrenal driven culture. We and this are. is very, one, it's very toxic for our nervous system in particular, along with all the other systems. But um, it just, uh, for me, it jams my brain sides. You know, uh, the first way it was identified is that I have a jamming in this corpus callosum. You talked about that in your question, I think maybe, is that, um, and so how to reintegrate those hemispheres so that they're balanced is the first thing is breathing, <laughs> is being a good breather, is being about knowing how at any given time to stop, like you said about pausing, you get that breath pause and take that little inspiration and just hold it in there for a second and then let it go. And for some reason that I've learned from my yoga practice uh, is to really use this breath like maybe uh, someone would a cup of coffee or someone would with a sleeping. I could use it either way to make myself lower or higher, depending on how I use it. <laughs> and that's what pranayama teaches you but sometimes you know you go to a pranayama class and you might not get this i was very lucky to go to india and study with Patabi joyce before he passed away and i uh also i studied with other yogis and i was very lucky to know what i was looking for <laughs> in terms of that information there's so much information out there it's just that knowing uh, the information that you need is not always easy to find, right? <laughs> so, so how do you how do you track that knowing? How do you track that knowing? And it may be different for other people, but That's for right. example, how do you know? Because I I know how to track that too, and it might be really different how I do it than you do. How do you do? Well, it? For, for me, I find my eyes, I, 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 I know when I need to either cool down or rev, like, you know, rebalance myself. I feel it in my eye field, my field of vision. It's, I don't, it's not like I can't see. Uh, it's that my field of vision gets distracted. Mm -hmm. And I could feel tension around the cranium. And I know that, like you said something about the frontal brain pattern, this is a brain pattern that takes you away from that organic process of your animal brain, <laughs> also your motor cortex. You know, your motor cortex is, it, this is such a wonderful place to, to live if you know where to go and find it. <laughs> and, and, and give us a little hint how you do that. For people <laughs> well you do that by paying by being still which is that sounds really crazy 
but you do it by being still and noticing who you are in that moment. And that takes time to do. Uh, it takes time to uh, feel yourself as a three-dimensional being, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, like you were saying, feel the weight of your bones, feel your breath process and how your systems are integrated. And then the cranial system is the other thing that was a very valuable piece of information. And, and I wish it was taught more. I think Upledger did a wonderful job of bringing craniosacral therapy out to the public and out of the osteopathic colleges because the osteopathic colleges don't even care about that anymore. Uh, they only care about medicine now, but cranial osteopathy is really a dying art in the osteopathic community. And, um, you know, your, when I teach my students, if I do workshops, I, in Philadelphia, when I had my studio, the pen kids used to always come over and we would do workshops. And one day this architect professor brought her architect students to my studio. I had no idea why. And she wanted me to teach them how to meditate. <laughs> so I thought, okay, where do I start? You know, and, uh, I was trying to talk to them about their cranial systems and how there's this stuff called cerebral spinal fluid and it flows up and down and it bathes your brain. And it's this, this wonderful, I told them like, they're like big lava lamps. Mm -hmm. And uh, I tried to coach them on breathing and then I, nobody was really, I lost them on that. And then I said, has anybody ever used a bong? And then I got everyone. I mean, the lamps is the wrong, wrong generation. <laughs> I got it. Got it. Well, so that's what I did. And so when I said, oh, bond, I go. got everybody's attention and they sat up really tall and they drew their breaths in from they knew where. And I thought this teacher was going to have a fit, but you know, so this is the idea. There's examples all over that but that are taken from our bodies <laughs> that we can access these systems. And so breath is from that place that you don't normally breathe all day. And once you start tapping into it, look, it's you experiment, right? You're not gonna kill yourself. Maybe one day you'll hyper, you know, you'll get yourself a little hyper and you'll feel your nerves tingling and, you know, but it goes away, right? And so uh, that's really what is important is that your biology is this place that it's like your science lab inside of you. Mm -hmm. And if you're not afraid <laughs> to go in there and tinker with things, uh, you know, you, you start trying a breathing practice and start observing what did it do to my thinking today? Mm -hmm. was, I, was I more patient with my husband? You know, was I more, was I more tolerant of the kids? Was I less distracted? For me, I had to do that practice because I got distracted a lot. I was always distracted and I did not make good eye contact. I could not make when I was young, my eyes were all over the place until I had to do these exercises where you move proximal to distal so that my eyes learned how to track normal. Um, yeah, so you, you speak to that about a practice of uh, proximal to distal, and you just gave an example of that. And but that, that's very nurturing and strengthening for your central nervous system. And for children, I can't tell, I can't say. So that kind of going to the axis that's in front of you, so it kind of. Yeah. So we know we develop, like, so we develop from that midline, right? Yep. That, that developmental, we move out from the center. That's how we develop. Mm -hmm. And so we lose that organic uh, in any movement, yoga movement, Pilates movement. Uh, if you're throwing a disc, you can always work from proximal to distal. And this is a neurological pattern. It also helps with eye movement and organizing brain activity. And I like to do it through yoga. For me, my yoga practice of sun salutations is a wonderful practice to practice proximal to distal motion. It slows you down a little bit when you're just learning, but then all of a sudden you become very strong and you stop using tension uh, as a method of maybe moving and you start using a little more like uh, the surfaces around you maybe you know, integrating your body weight and space uh, with surfaces and your breath drives you there. 
So there's this alchemy we have at the, our fingertips uh, every day. We can bring ourselves into a new place. And I'm uh, really excited when I get a student to go, oh my God, oh, oh, you know, you know, when they have, when people have those realizations, you know that that will stay with them for life, no matter if they're exercising or in the car, this is an awakening in a way. Yes. Another uh, awakening of a dimension of yourself, like, oh, I didn't realize that was possible. And when you transform a person to understanding an exercise so that now they like doing it, and then, you know, because, you know, look, as we get older, our upper backs are getting weak. Gravity weighs on you. There is a relationship with the mechanical that when you have an understanding of its organic uh, underpinning, then it's more uh, whole in its process. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I would say we, we talked about that with aging uh, is that for me. Uh, aging and dryness have to be differentiated, um, that I'm going to age, but I don't have to dry out. So part of me is not so much that gravity is pulling me down. It's that I'm lacking a fluidity that bounces me up. So the earth, you know, is, is a rebound and or ground force reaction. And so if connective tissue, which also is part of the neurological conversation, because there's this central channel, but then there's also the emanation of fluidity throughout all the connective tissue that creates a dynamic of volume. And certainly juicy psoas helps with good uh, nerve innervation because fluid is a conductor of messages, energetic messages. So, so I start to relate to myself and earth in a different way when I open up that connective tissue. And certainly for psoas, that's like vital for a healthy, juicy core. But that gives people permission to explore. You know, when you, when you, just when you even say that to me, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I have this fluid inside of me. What am I doing with it when I'm working my muscles? You know, we, just the curiosity, I always tell, you know, say to the students, if you ask yourself the question, don't worry about an answer right away. Your nervous system is going to take care of it. Maybe not tomorrow, but maybe one day you're going to get up out of the chair differently and you're going to go, oh, that's what it was. <laughs> you know, so sometimes we, we do pressure, especially kids, and that's the ba getting back to this idea of children uh, being very whole, and, but sometimes the environment around them is not uh, maybe helping develop it's that. Fragmented. Well, the culture is very fragmented right now, so it's it's... It's not create. It's not based on that wholeness. So then our children are coming in whole, and then what happens to them? And some can adapt very quickly, yeah. and some are cha are challenged. But I also feel the ones who are challenged are also challenging the culture. Are saying, "Come on, you know, we could do better than that." Yeah, but but why? I, I think you know uh, the interesting conversation that we've just gotten out of. Uh, because of children having to homeschool. I mean, homeschool had to be a dream for so many kids. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they kept saying children need to be in the classroom, they need to be socialized. But sometimes learning in a classroom in such a container, that's what you're doing to a child. You're teaching them to be in a container <laughs> with their learning. And so that's like so literal for me as a person who doesn't want to be contained and who functions best when I'm not in a container. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, uh, I feel like giving children freedom of expression or freedom of choice. Do I want to learn at home? You know, or do I want to learn in an open environment? Or do I need a, a rigid curriculum? Like how do- well, That's different for each child. I don't know if you know this, but I have three adult children and each of them chose different pathways of learning uh, that were based initially on uh, their own knowing. And so my children were all homeschooled, but, men, but each one took a different pathway and one really wanted the structure. And, and, and because of my, who I am, I was more comfortable in the other, but she very clearly knew she wanted a container, you know, and a container of a very specific kind. And 
you know, it, it was fascinating for me. And looking back on those adults now, I can say each of them uh, has a level of coherency that I'm, I'm just, it touches my heart. So the heart field is also a piece that we didn't talk about and we're coming to our end of our conversation, but I do wanna bring that in is coherency, the word coherency, which we both share and speak about. To me, coherency came out of the work of HeartMath, which looked at the oscillation of the heart as being the orchestrator of all the nervous systems, that it wasn't the brain that it defines what's happening. It's actually the oscillation of this large field, which goes beyond the physicality of our body, 16 feet they've measured with whatever tools they have to measure with. But they're really talking about a field, a heart field. But when, it, when that heart field is the kind of heart of the matter, it's nonlinear. And so it actually creates more diversity within us, more capability, more variation that actually enhances us on, on literally our health uh, levels. Uh, then the linear, this is the way you do it and this is how you do it. So it's, it's, a, it's a relationship and bringing in the heart field, I just wanna to speak to that because you're one part of, the, uh, of your book that you sent me on spiritual ecology, I wanted to read before we come to a close. I'm gonna let you speak to, of course to the idea of coherency. But you said the pursuit of a healthy lifestyle is a moral, spiritual and global imperative. Industrialization and automation have become the social and political thrust of a people who desperately seek change without fully understanding how to achieve it. Automation has distanced us from nature and intelligence and how we gain access to its power is intrinsically linked to our birthright and to our ability to articulate and express ourselves fully. And I just, I love that. And you put in mind, body, and spirit. And I think coherency doesn't need to even be um, put in those categories. That category is part of the linear thinking. It just simply is that we are all of that. So coherency. Yeah. But we're not allowed, but we're not allowed to be. <laughs> yeah, look, in the outside world, we're not allowed to come from our heart. Yet we appreciate people who do. And so there's still a dichotomy about this. Uh, you know, the world is armored right now, especially the world we live in. And so heart does not take a primary role <laughs> in learning either, you know, learning from your heart, <laughs> learning, you know, learning from your liver, learning from your kidneys. What are these organs that that other societies like the Chinese assign characteristics to that are very important to personality development. You think about that and you go, wow, I love that. You know, again, that gives us permission to, to extend our natural ability or natural intelligence into that idea. And it's not that we have to live it in a dogmatic way, but we embrace it in a way that is relative to our own spirit path, you know, to our personal uh, need. Yes, and you know, the not allow needs to be, I think, uh, challenged because for me, uh, if I want to enter into the heart field, I can actually change the dynamic of the culture that I live in. So nobody can stop me from doing that. And therefore yeah. they may not value me for doing it, but the ability to go into my heart and to feel into that field that is so much larger than myself, but is the language of plants and animals and the living world helps us start to dissolve the insistence that the, uh, what I call the colonized uh, top-down power over structure. So I feel that there's a, there's a welcoming into that heart field that we all have power to initiate and to go in. So I, you know, and I agree, all organs are interesting. In fact, psoas is kind of housed between the kidney energy, that winter water uh, coming into being into the, uh, the 
liver, gallbladder, but it's really that that tissue is about self-actualization. And, and one, of the, one of the ways the Chinese speak of it is the audacity of the gallbladder. And I love that because that is really truly, like that's the audacity for you to keep following your own path, even in the face of you know, your family going, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know, like, I love that you had the audacity to keep letting yourself unfold and flourish and blossom and find this wholeness that is you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, very beautiful. Thank you so much.